Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Hello and welcome to the Headliner Radio podcast, where today we are joined by the Music Venue Trust CEO, Mark David. Um, Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. How are you and where are you? Where are you joining us from? Uh, well, pleasure to join you, obviously, and I'm actually talking to you from my home in Barcelona. Very nice. How, uh, how are things out there at the moment? Uh, how's, uh, how's kind of the return to, to normality progressing? Uh, slowly, but actually sort of speeding up. I mean, it was interesting watching, you know, I, I, from because I work in England and live here, I, I get both ends of news stories and media narratives. And obviously there was a lot of chest beating about the success of the British vaccine programme and how far ahead we were. But actually, as we're coming to the point of unlocking, it's interesting to see pretty much the whole of Europe aligning in achieving second dose vaccination targets and gradually being able to unlock things like live music. So in fact, actually right now in Catalonia where I am, I think uh, venues can operate at 70% capacity. So right. it, that's actually slightly ahead of where we are in the, in England and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. So it's kind of interesting to see how different countries have done different things and they've had different outcomes. That's, that's very interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll touch upon that again. Um, now, obviously, it's been an incredibly busy time for you, so there are a number of things that that, that we can chat about today. But um, I thought it'd be quite timely, um, you know, at the time of recording this uh, podcast, um, the Music Venue Trust has just announced Venues Day 2021. Um, so what can you tell us about that? What kind of form is that going to take? Um, um, and what can people expect from it this year? Um well, first of all, they should expect that it will be quite a drunken party on the physical day. <laughs> um, you know, we it's obviously been an incredibly tough time for venue operators and, and the staff who work in them. Um, we do need an opportunity for everybody to get together. There's been a lot of, you know, very personal, very emotional challenges. We're a very strong and tightly knit network. Our, our venues, they started in 2014. We normally get 500 to 600 venues you know, turn up at one place in London. We're doing that again on the 5th of October. But we're also aware that there are outcomes from this where people may be unwilling to travel or they may feel vulnerable or whatever. So we're going to have one big day where we all get together and talk about what happened and what we should do next. And then we're going to have, on the 12th of October, we're having um, uh, an online version of that with panels about specific issues and lots of our partners from the sector coming in. And I suppose the other thing that we've learned from from this long period is that there's so much that we can be sharing around the world among grassroots music venues, you know, problems faced by venue operators are very similar in all different countries. And what we are uh, having this year is on the 19th of October, we're having the first ever international venues day. And we have uh, partnerships with national um, independent venue Alliance in America, the music policies forum in America, Canadian live music office, the Australian live music office and all of European through live DMA. So we have access to nearly 10,000 of these venues across the world. And we're holding one big day to talk about shared issues, things like ownership of the buildings, um, you know, how we're respected by governments, how we're treated by governments and, um, how we're treated by the music industry, frankly, you know, and that's going to be a really interesting day where I think people will see how much, how much is shared as a challenge by these type of venues, how much of the work is shared very similar around the world and how much some of the solutions to that kind of problem may be 
very synchronized and, and a synchronized approach and learning from each other can be a very useful thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that would be absolutely fascinating. I mean, uh, I was wondering how much you, you know, personally and as an organization have been uh, coordinating and speaking with similar trade bodies and associations around the world during the pandemic. You know, is, is that something that you were doing much of prior to the pandemic or um, is it something that's been kind of uh, escalated uh, because of this and, and what are some of the kind of similarities and uh, trends that you've seen when speaking to to these groups around the world is everyone very much having shared experiences or are there some places that are you know kind of streets ahead in the way that that they're dealing with the, the pandemic you know what what have been some of the main observations that you've seen I mean, the challenges are pretty much the same. Um, I mean, the straight answer to your question is, yeah, I mean, uh, about three or four years ago, I embarked on a kind of <laughs> independently driven international mission to try and identify where there might be people like us around the world trying to do similar work. Um, we're part of something called Live DMA, which is the European Association of Organisations like Music Venue Trust that represent small venues and represent the live music industry. Um, just Just as this crisis got going, they launched a... Um, uh, of, of an association like ours in the United States called the National Independent Venues Alliance. Um, we were really pleased to see that. We'd done some work trying to persuade cities in America, um, particularly Austin and Nashville and San Francisco and Chicago had their own little independent venue alliances. There's a Music Venues Alliance in Austin. There's one in Nashville. But it was very important they should have a national thing. So it was great to see that emerging. And we've done a lot of work with Canada, Canada Live Music. Um, what's happened in COVID has been pretty much the same to all of them. We have, as a sector, kind of been held up as an exemplar of the type of things that might be risky, <laughs> which hasn't always felt appropriate. Some of the science around that has been disproved but not been acted upon. So actually, that's quite a worrying thing most of us faced. The responses from government have been very, very different. Um, I think we've ended up in in similar places. I, I'm, you know, I'm I'm wary of ever sort of coming across as sort of like the arrogant British organisation because we've been very organised for years. But I think we probably are viewed by the other organisations of having had a high level of success okay. because we were. In, in the UK, we have been in crisis, frankly, in this sector for 20 years. And for that reason, the, 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 the nature of our organisation is constantly fighting a crisis. And so actually, you give us another crisis and we're really good at it. <laughs> and, and I'm not going to pretend that we don't think we've been really good at this one. Uh, you know, across the world, we've seen relatively high percentages of music venues being closed down and being lost. In the UK, it, it is a tiny, tiny percentage at the moment. I think we're looking at seven out okay. of our network of 948. That would be, frankly, remarkable if that's where we end up. It would be less than 1%, which would be astonishing. There's still lots of work to be done because there's lots of debt as we come out of this. I think the other thing to say is that, that COVID is a magnifying glass on lots of problems that our sector, grassroots music venues, already face. It, it it does create a new risk if you were doing your risk assessment for opening. But in terms of your economic, economic viability and your sustainability and your resilience, what it does is it throws a magnifying glass on all the kind of problems we've been talking about for seven years now. Ownership of buildings, 
lack of cultural respect, lack of cultural parity, ignorance, frankly, of the, their motivations and methods of working on the part of government at all levels, local through to national, lack of respect, frankly, well, expressed respect by the music industry about how important they are. But actually, when it comes down to the nitty gritty of what are you doing about that, kind of a lack of respect, you know, a kind of like, oh, they're really important. I'm going to get on with making my money out of my Wembley Arena show, (laughs) you know, and actually that ultimately this is a pyramid and we don't mind being at the bottom of that pyramid. But if you start taking out the foundations of a pyramid, the pyramid collapses. Uh, And it's not more complicated than that, you know, in what inspired us to start this work was over a period of eight years, 35% of the trading venues of this type in this country in, in the United Kingdom closed down. They were permanently lost. That, in, that includes the ones that opened and the ones that were lost. There was loss of 35% of all, of all the trading spaces. Okay, that's a pretty big chunk out of a pyramid at the ground. You could take 35% out of the top and you probably wouldn't notice, but you take 35% out of the bottom and you've got a pyramid that's going to fall over. And I think actually the music industry is seen across the world by these venues, frankly, as not having understood that playing well enough and not having understood the need for investment and the need to respect what's happening there and really work out how to support that research and development work that these grassroots music venues do and how to support grassroots artists at the point they're starting their career rather than waiting until maybe they're two or three steps up the pyramid and then coming in with all the support. We need a lot more support in those bottom rungs. Yeah, I mean, why do you think that, that there's been such a... There's been so much ignorance, perhaps, around around that area of the industry. Like you said, it's, you know, the grassroots independent venues are right at the very heart of the music industry. You, you wouldn't have thought it would take too much uh you know for people to realize how vital that is for the future sustainability of the industry as a whole um why do you think that is both from a from a music industry level and and also at a government level um because uh, you know people you know often rightly mention you know the kind of uh you know economic benefits and value there is to having a really healthy and sustainable music industry at all levels you know not just arenas and stadiums but also at, at grassroots level so why do you think the message is, isn't getting through in in the way that it really should well I, I think we can take some pride that in the uk as we can see in covid the work that we had done in the in the six years before this did mean that government were more our government were more susceptible to the, the, the surveys, the evidence, the data that we immediately hit them with in March and April last year in 2020. So there was support that came forward for grassroots music venues. But there was a lot of technical detail we were still hadn't managed to get them to understand. So that's partly that, you know, the sector needs to explain itself better. There's still this, you know, to my, in my mind, slightly outdated image of a grassroots music venue. I mean, e- even the phrase itself, we, we made that up, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> prior to us creating the phrase grassroots music venues, they were, they were pretty much referred to as the toilet circuit, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the expectation was low. And there was also this kind of <laughs> venue operators as, as sheep, sheepskin jacket wearing 
slick back hair people with rolls of 20 pound notes in their pocket, <laughs> you know, going to the band afterwards and saying, here, here, get yourself a kebab, you know, and that, I mean, I'm not going to deny that was true in the seventies and eighties. It was full of people who were, because of the nature of the music industry, they were making a reasonable living out of running a licensed premises in which live bands were able to play. But in the last 20 years, that, that business has evaporated and those people are gone. Who's left running a grassroots music venue now? And this, this applies pretty much all the way around the world. Who's left running a grassroots music venue? Generally, either a single or a group of people who are passionate music fans who just want music to happen in their locality. They want to be part of developing new eyes. They want to be part of, you know, creating new music. And they've decided to go down this weird route. I mean, the profit margin on putting on live music is about minus 30%. (laughs) So, you know, you're not looking at people who are this, this concept. Even now you get people slightly older in the industry going about, well, we've got to do something about pay to play. There are no grassroots music venues in the country left doing pay to play. Mm. It's gone. You know, there there are, there is, there are about three unscrupulous promoters who I can name you and they're all in their fifties as well. Do you know, but there's no, but there's nobody runs a venue doing that anymore. That's that's been gone for 15, 20 years. I think it's kind of a build up of that kind of scuzzy <laughs> rock and roll image of them, and that kind of not really understanding the motivations of why people would do it. In the music industry, I think it was the government. Government is being is being persuaded about the importance of them, partly by their own communities saying how important they are. You know, and, and we've seen a huge amount of work by communities in this crisis. The music industry, I think, not understands how important they are. But if you don't have to worry about something and it might impact your profit line, then why worry about it? You know, if if you're if you're one of the two percent of artists making a living out of out of your tours and your records and, and you've been through that circuit and you're now playing Wembley Stadium or headlining Glastonbury. Did you, did you go through a process where you were educated about what was happening at the time you were at the grassroots? Did you come out of that grassroots sector with a message about how important it is to reap? I don't think we did that at the time. It's very important we do it now. We need this generation of the future artists to remember when they get to the headline of Glastonbury that they got there because there was somewhere for them to put their foot on a stage, play their first song in their hometown, or even before that, to see somebody else doing it and feel inspired they should be part of it. And if we don't, that's what we can change. We can, we can change the future. We can't change where we are exactly now in terms of that perception. There are some great artists out there, by the way. You know, I'm not here to slag off some of them. Some of the artists have done stuff and they've been, but we don't have a culture of it. And in that way, we are actually out of step, frankly, with much of the rest of Europe and even in America where there is a culture of understanding that these venues will need financial support and it should actually be coming from when people become successful. This is like this is like your degree, which if you were taking it at a university would be costing you £9,250 a year. It does cost you some money, but it costs everybody else there some money. I mean, no, venues are losing money hand over fist putting on new acts. They're trying to make it up by selling beer. What about if they didn't have to do that? 
what about if we actually had a mechanism in France? They have a they have a tax on t- live music tickets. Three percent of the face charge of the ticket goes into a fund, and anybody who's putting on a risky event, which pretty much all grassroots events are, can draw money out of that fund for the money they would lose. So when Madonna plays the Stade de France, three percent of the ticket money is ending up in a fund that might support somebody to put on somebody playing the banjo in front of twenty people because we don't know whether that's important or not yet. That's fascinating. Is is that something that exists, you know, um, in in sort of multiple places, or is that is that quite a one-off? It, across the rest of Europe, this type of activity in grassroots venues is much more heavily subsidised, either by public or through subsidy schemes within their own industries. Okay. So we are we are comparable only to Spain in the level of investment that comes down through the industry. And in fact, in Spain, that level of investment is replaced by sponsorship. It is extremely normal in Spain for a small venue to be sponsored by a beer company, um, which doesn't, you know, in, in England, we have sponsorship of major chains or of large venues. We do not have Guinness calling the Halladelphi the Guinness Halladelphi, you know, as an example. So, we don't have either of the mechanisms. The main mechanism is an expectation of public subsidy or of a pipeline investment. But outside that, the only country that's like us is an outlier out the 28 is Spain and they have sponsorship. We don't have either of those. Okay. That's very interesting. I mean, do you think that that's something that, that, that could potentially happen in the UK or are you, you know, how hopeful are you that, that something like that might, might sort of take root here? We, we proposed it before COVID. We had a working group with the rest of the industry called the Pipeline Investment Fund Group. And the whole purpose of that group was to try and work out, um, you know, exactly how pipeline investment might flow back down into grassroots music venues. So it's, it's, it's a work in progress. A slight thing there. It's a work in progress. Um, but it's, it, it's obviously going to be slightly more difficult to look at the live music industry alone. You know, because obviously everybody's reeling from what's happened in the last year and a half. I'm certainly not. I'm certainly not walking into anybody's office in a live music company saying, "By the way, we now need five percent of your profit to support grassroots yeah. <laughs> <Last laughs> venues." Because we know exactly. I mean, we're 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 very collegiate. We know the position our colleagues are in as well. But I think I do you know what I'd raise the question: Where the hell are Spotify? And I'll put them on the spot and name them. I can tell you where Amazon Music are because Amazon Music have just stepped in to spawn the venues day. And before that, had stepped in to put some money into the Save Our Venues campaign so that we could afford to provide support to every venue across the country. I don't know where Spotify are, and their profits are up hugely, you know, and their income is up hugely. Where are they? You know, where do they they think their content comes from? I know that can sometimes be a challenging question, but what they think that artists are just going to appear on Spotify with never playing a show, with never being inspired because there's no shows near them, I think these companies really need to take a much more holistic view of their, of the whole ecosystem of how does their profit, how is their profit created? You can't just keep swooping in and taking the top line of the profit off things that other people invested in. At some point you have to be a lot more rooted in the pyramid of the ecosystem than than that is. And frankly, the moment (laughs) Spotify aren't even on the pyramid of live music, are they? You know, they're not, they're just, they're not even they're not even paying attention don't even know the pyramid exists 
I mean, obviously, there's another argument going on about grassroots artists and all artists in general being rewarded by Spotify. I mean, that's a, you know, Tom Tom Gray's um, broken record campaign is having major, major steps forward in revolutionising music industry. But most people's careers start in live music, yeah. and most people's careers are inspired by live music. This is like, I mean, not not having live music is literally like taking the ignition motor out of a car and expecting it to run. Yeah. You know, and, and 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 then you let's imagine you've got a car within a car. Let's say that the engine block that drives that car is the live music industry. I'm full of metaphors today, but let's <laughs> let's the engine block is the music industry. The grassroots venues are the ignition of that in, industry. You can't run it without them. You aren't. Uh, no matter what anybody says, nobody is going to get. Uh, nobody is going to get to headline Glastonbury Festival without playing shows live somewhere else first. If you think Glastonbury are about to book somebody who's got a million followers on TikTok, you're an idiot. You need you need comparable metrics. How many tickets have they sold? How many live music fans do they have? Glastonbury and every other festival in the UK do not book people because they've got a million views on YouTube. That's not how it works. They look at who sold tickets. Yeah, it's very true. I think it's, um, yeah, it's that particularly the world of music festivals and things like that, they will always operate in a, in a different way, I guess, to the rest of the music industry in that regard. There's always going to be that focus on tangible things, ticket sales, that type of thing, not just, yeah, views on YouTube or, or TikTok. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really understandable metric. I mean, do you know what? I could talk about this for hours because it's one of, the, one of the areas of the music industry that fascinates me. Yeah. We've moved into the digital era in which even the official charts company are equating your ability to click on a link for a YouTube video or, a, you know, or Spotify with that you like that artist. So you end up with a remarkable thing. I mean, if you're in the right playlist, you have a hit. But what about if that you're on that playlist and everybody who plays that playlist hates that record? Because unless they hit skip within 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's a really, it is a, this, this metric of digital behavior equates to real life behavior. Well, let's be honest. We all know that's not true. You know, I, I think I have something like 6,000 followers on Twitter. Do I, do I think, do I think they're all hanging off my every word? Like I was in a pub with them. Of course they're not. You know, I don't think I've got an audience of 6,000 people. If I put a tweet, a, a tweet out, it's very true. Why, do, why do artists think that, they, you know, why, why is the music industry thinking people have got an audience of 40,000 people because it was played by 40,000 accounts on Spotify? Do you, I mean, it, that is not 40,000 people who want to go to the gig. That's 40,000 people who want to know how something sounded. You know, they, this, these metrics are very confusing. They, I mean, they're, you know, get somebody's got 40 million hits on YouTube, I might put them on at the Tunbridge Wells Forum, see yeah. what happens. But, you know, it's, <laughs> but it's, not, it's not directly equatable. I mean, in our, in our sector, we really feel that very, very strongly, you know, that actually digital is interesting. It doesn't tell me whether somebody's going to leave their house at 7.30 on a Friday night to walk to my venue and buy a ticket to see the, the artists that they watched on YouTube. That doesn't, it's not the same thing at all. No, absolutely not. Um, I, moving back just briefly onto COVID. I know everyone's a little bit tired of talking about that, but it is obviously, 
quite pertinent at the moment, particularly with the lockdown extension uh, having recently been pushed back to July 19th. Um, I was wondering what, first of all, what your thoughts are on that and what kind of implications that could have for for some of these grassroots venues. How pivotal is the the extension, even if it is just by, you know, four weeks? What What kind of impact is that likely to have? The straight answer is that if government does the things that we've asked them to do, which is a six-point plan we gave them, it will have minimal impact. The problem is that they got into this pattern of announcing delays, restrictions and lockdowns without announcing the financial package or the mitigation measures they're going to put in place to prevent bad outcomes for businesses and charities and organisations and whatever. So again, this time they announced... They wouldn't be open on the 21st of June, on the 14th of June. They finally announced on the 16th of June, after we've been shouting at them for 48 hours, that that tenant that landlords were not allowed to evict tenants. That's 48 hours of stress and anxiety. 93% of grassroots music venues are tenants. And all of them were expected by their landlords to start paying rent from the 21st of June. Even the ones who had the best landlords... They were, they were being told, okay, we can go back to normal from the 21st of June. On the 14th of June, the government says that can't happen. It then takes them 48 hours to say, oh, and by the way, you can't evict these tenants until at least March next year, which means that the whole conversation between landlords and tenants is immediately changed. But in that 48 hours, we had to send 111 letters, I think it was, to landlords asking them not to evict their tenants. Wow. And that, and that is pretty typical of every point in the six-point plan if they announce the right financial support if they do you know what i mean if they if they do the right things that then it's fine but when they don't or there is a time lag between the two things we have to try and manage the outcome of what we're being told you know our entire sector is surrounded by third-party individuals or organizations we've got service suppliers we've got landlords we've got local authorities we've even got the government one of the things we're arguing with the government is is should these venues be paying business rates from the first of july which the government wants them to do for premises that the government says must not be used that sounds insane doesn't it certainly doesn't make a lot of sense Yes. Um, uh, have yeah, they, have that, they currently changed uh, it? Facts that. Yeah. Have they currently changed it so that we won't have to do that? No, they have not. Well, wow. so from the first of July, the government is one of the service suppliers that may end up taking a small venue to court because it can't pay its business rates for premises that the government has said it's not allowed to occupy. That is a bit weird, you know. Yeah, I mean that is. I mean, do you do you see that? Do you see that in any of those, uh, you know, potential cases actually coming through? Do you think that we will be in a situation where we see some of these venues and their owners being, t- you know, potentially taken to court for not being able to pay these these fees that they're not allowed to even open their businesses for in order to pay them? I, 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 we suspect we've had a legal opinion on this. We suspect it would be illegal and would probably fail a judicial review. But, uh, you know, that that's just a really sort of striking, I'd say the same on VAT, 
I'd say the same on C-bills uh, and bounce-back loans. The government created these things and has now told people they can't trade until at least the 19th of July and then told the people they created these things with to start asking these businesses to pay money they haven't got. It's not very logical, you know. There's also the – we've done a lot of work around getting, you know, funding, public funding support out to these venues, and that's been pretty successful. We're still waiting, though. How many weeks is it now? It's two weeks. We're still waiting for them to officially announce what the criteria is and what the application process is. That two weeks may not sound very serious, but I would I would suggest that everybody thinks about it as being 15 and a half months instead of 15 months. And then think to yourself, you know, if, if you weren't allowed to earn any money at all for 15 and a half months, <laughs> is that worse than not being allowed to earn it for 15 months when you've been told that it would only be 15 months? The answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Are, are, your, are your financial problems and your difficulties thrown into an, under another magnifying glass? Yes, they are. Because all the venues had to tell everybody around them, well, on workers, they had to bring workers back in to start booking gigs and start putting shows on sale and start selling tickets and then go back to those workers and say, okay, I can't actually afford to pay you because we're not going to do those shows, but I also can't have you not working because you've now got to phone everybody up and reschedule them. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a problem, isn't yes. it? It's a, it is a problem. It's, it's one of those, but let's look on the bright side. I mean, yesterday we had Sajid Javid in the the new health secretary up in the House of Commons saying 19th of July is the date at the end of these restrictions. It's the end of lockdown. Obviously, we want to see what that exactly looks like. There's still the possibility there may be calls to continue with things like masks or there might be calls for any kind of certifications or you know anything like this could still emerge from that. But the message was pretty clear yesterday. They are intending that it goes ahead on the 19th of July. And I think the vaccination program and the percentages of people that's going to reach by that date indicates that that is a realistic date on which our conversations around COVID and what we need to do to, to, to manage that, they, they will change. And, and that's the first time I've actually probably said to anybody out loud, okay, 19th of July, there is actually going to be a dramatic change. The change requires government to really have a sensible conversation with the public and with the media about the fact that risks will still exist because risks do exist. That's society for you. There are risks right now if you walk out of your door and don't meet anybody at all. There's the risk of being run down by a bus. There's the risk of catching another illness that isn't COVID. There's the risk. I mean, life is littered with risks. While we had a pandemic that we didn't have any control or mitigation levels for, we obviously had to deal with that. Once these vaccines take hold, which we know what they do for the level of risk, then obviously we have to look at the future and say, this is a level of risk we can manage. This is what we're going to do to manage it. And that very strongly now we feel should not include not having live music, not having live music venues open. That doesn't make any sense anymore. And we're frankly already seeing that. I was laughing yesterday that they opened Wimbledon and it was a test event because that's their new favourite phrase, but it doesn't really mean anything. It means a favoured event that we think is important, so we'd like it to go ahead. 
I think it was an hour into the set the, into the into the start of Wimbledon before they put the court num- uh, the centre court roof on. So that's now an enclosed event for I think it was eight thousand nine hundred people were in there. Do you think that- how is how is that? Just I mean, I, I mean, you can't answer this question, but it's rhetorical. How is that possibly less risky than letting one hundred and fifty people go into the Halladelphi? It doesn't make any sense to pretend that that is. We're already at the point where we could be doing these things. I know all about the infections rate. I know all about the Delta variant. I go to a lot of science meetings. I go to every meeting they'll let me in. It's about the total level of risk coming from various different things that we do and the point at which gatherings of small numbers of people to listen to live music indoors presented a serious risk to the National Health Service and to the national pitch is gone. And we need to we need to work forwards from that and say, okay, how can we play a role in managing it from this point forward? Not just be closed because we're so risky. Do you think that just comes down to uh, either a lack of understanding of the sector or just outright discrimination against the, the the live music industry when it when you see things like Wimbledon taking place, the fact that in the Euros, uh, you know, the semi-finals and the final, I think at Wembley are going to have up to, I believe, it's sixty thousand capacity it's actually sixty five thousand. Sixty thousand people can buy tickets and five thousand dignitaries okay i mean does that seem to you like it's it is just out you know there's a there's a kind of rule there that um the um the country can't possibly prevent the football from taking place or sports because that's just considered to be more important in society I, I, than like I genuinely music. can't i genuinely can't answer the question but the, the the answer as in as much as i have an answer is that at the start of this certain activities were identified to be more risky they were a pretty good description of what takes place in the music venue but then a bunch of assumptions were made about what actually happens in a music venue so the assumption is, frankly, at this point, that you arrive at 8 o'clock and leave at 11 o'clock and you spend the entire rest of the time jumping up and down the spot and licking the person next to you. Mm. That's not what happens. <laughs> you know, I, I, I would love it if one of the people we work with from Sage or Independent Sage or whatever had any experience of going to gigs and understanding the huge range of activity that takes place, how long it lasts for, you know, the I mean, it sounds stupid, but it'd be great if we had a leading scientist that actually ever been in the mosh pit and, and understood the rules of the mosh pit and how that might work. And, you know, there's just been a bunch of assumptions about how risky this is. You know, and it, and it, they're, they're, not, they're not accurate. I understand why that resulted in this being closed down. We're now moving to the point where most of society is now, frankly, is open. Um, rules are being ignored. We're still closed down because of assumptions that were made about the way that people behave even though we can now see those behaviours taking place at football games. I mean, I'm sure you've seen the footage of the inside at Wembley at one of the concession stands, 500 people singing, dancing and hugging each other. I, that is not less risky than somebody doing that. <laughs> you know, somebody no. doing it in the Public Jobs Forum or in the Boiler Room in Guildford. It doesn't make any sense for one no. thing to happen and one thing not. No, I, I was just about to say the same thing that that I've seen that kind of footage, and you know I've been to plenty of football matches and the, and the celebrations and the kind of uh, interaction going on between between people in the crowd is not too dissimilar to to what they yeah. probably assume might be going on in a mosh pit in an indoor venue. Um, yes. So yeah, it's um, it does seem to be 
something of a double standard uh, from, from from where I'm sitting. Um, perhaps yeah, that's just I, from I a think, misunderstanding. I it's, but it's uh, I, I think it's easy to assume it's deliberate. I think it's probably a, you know it's a, it's a series of factors built up towards this point. You know, not very being very well understood. A bunch of science came out early, even if it was disproved, disproved later. And then, frankly, governments wanting to appear to do something. Let's yeah. have some restrictions. That will keep people focused on the need to be vaccinated. Yes. Okay, but if you can explain to me why 200 people in your local in your local Primark fighting over a sale jumper is is more risky than 200 people standing in front of a folk act, yeah. you know, or sitting sitting down. There's there's no logic to it. It's just assumed and assumptive behaviour. And uh, and I should say because we discussed this before we started. I am in no way, shape or form a COVID denier or a conspiracy theorist or anything else. We just have to address the science. We have to calmly and neutrally look at what do people do when they go to gigs? How do they behave? How many of them are there? What are the mitigations in place like ventilation or air circulation or UVC filtration or people wearing masks, people showing passport things, people showing certification? What can we do? Because like everybody else, we are entitled to be open once a risk is manageable, if we can show that we can manage it, and we can manage it. Absolutely. Um, and on a, on a kind of positive note, what, what have you made of the efforts that have been made by people across the industry to come together with organisations like We Make Events, um, people like Frank Turner, who I know recently yeah. uh, was uh, awarded with the Outstanding Achievement for grassroots music venues award by by the music venues trust um how how encouraging and heartening has it been to see the way that that all these various people have come together to try and fight for the good of the live music industry in this country every cloud has a silver lining (laughs) (laughs) if you look hard enough i mean we've had tremendous tremendous support from artists we've had uh, we've had even even more support than that from audiences and communities so many of these venues have been saved because of an initiative by a single artist. I mean, Frank, you picked out there, but Katie Tunstall, Get Kate, Wear Kate, Flight. These people have done so much to protect their community and protect their, their enter Shikara. I mean, I could carry on reading out the names of artists for, for another hour. People have done a huge amount. And then the communities themselves just went, this space matters to us. And we're prepared to write to their MP and prepared to write to their council and get stuff done. And that's, that's it. I, our catchphrase throughout this, we've probably seen us posting it, is that people who say it cannot be done should get out of the way of the people doing it. And all the way through this crisis, we've had people who are really prepared to just go out and get it done. That's, that's the difference between people sitting around having a chat about what should happen. Forget all that. Just, you know, even right now, you can walk into your local music venue and find somebody who probably needs a hand, probably needs some help from you as they're trying to reopen. If people just get together and get stuff done it's much better than all this gassing about covid on bloody tv shows and guessing in the daily mail and the daily express and the guardian about what might happen just get stuff done you know that's 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 the theme of our whole organization just get it done yeah well i mean that seems as good a note to to finish on as any i think so yeah i mean <laughs> thank you so much for chatting to us today mark it's been it's been really fascinating you know we could, i think we could talk about this for hours but um no it's been, it's been great to see the incredible work that you and the the trust have been doing um you know for for the good of the industry so you know we 
as, as I think everyone agrees, you know, we'll really, really hope to see places reopening as soon as possible, and and hopefully we'll be able to uh, to meet up in person next time you're in the UK. I'll meet you down the front for some crowd surfing. How about that? <laughs> it's a deal, definitely. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks, Daniel, nice speech. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.